Welcome to the Get the Neck Podcast. I am your host, Jerry Neck. <laughs> I want to drink your blood. No, I can't. I was, you know, it would have been fun to uh, carry that off for an extended period of time. But we are a couple of days away from Halloween. I am your host, Jerry Neck, and this is the Get the Neck Podcast. I'm joined by a very, very special guest this week. He has written for the Interrobang. He has tried his hand at stand-up comedy. He's a bit of a fiction writer. He studied at SUNY Geneseo, which is the same college my father went to in upstate New York. And now he's just become and joined the ranks of corporate stooges. And he just happens to be my cousin. Please welcome to the program, Jason Steele. Jason, how are you? Good, Jerry. How are you? I am wonderful. Was that intro good enough? Would that work for you? No, oh, yeah, it was, it was great. It was great. I wish we could have carried on the bell Logosi for a little bit longer, but you know, no, no, it was awesome. Thank you. Vel- welcome to my house. <laughs> nice. I am Count yeah, Dracula. Yeah. yeah, I could do that. Do that like all night. I did like a video a few years ago on Facebook where I was all dressed up as as Count Dracula, and I I did the whole like opening. Sp- opening speech but from the book not so much from the movie so oh very cool very good cool. do you have it memorized <sighs> i did at the time i don't know if i do now um it has to do with welcome to my house leave some of the happiness that you bring eh. anyway so two day, two nights before halloween halloween on a sunday this year and a lot of people getting out and uh getting dressed up and and trick-or-treating and that kind of thing and you know in a lot of places in the country the weather is lending itself to the Halloween vibe, right? Where you are, it's been raining. Where I am, you're in upstate New York. I'm in, in Washington State. Uh, the west coast of California actually got some rain in the last couple of weeks. So uh, definitely fall-like weather, Halloween weather. And it's fantastic. I love it. One of the reasons I moved here, it's like fall all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the leaves, I just tracked some dead leaves in. I feel like sitting down and watching a horror movie and, you know, the... Uh, the fall is a special time for me. There's a lot of nostalgia and a lot of uh, great memories, great Halloween memories back when I actually liked getting dressed up and, you know, going trick or treating. And uh, some of us still do even at 52. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. And actually it's kind of funny in my, (laughs) you know, in my teenage years and my, 20s I, I was like yeah that's stupid getting dressed up like why did why do people even like halloween that much and now that i'm like you know i'm 32 now and i'm like lightening up a little bit i feel like i'm growing older and become that gentle old man that young you know risk-taking kids become later on in life and uh and i'm like you know what maybe i want to get dressed up this year and just have some fun and you know go hang out with friends and have a few drinks have some pizza you know, I don't think I don't think you ever get too old for it. I think you do go through this this stage, this phase of life where you're like, I've outgrown it. It's kid stuff. And then, you know, you get to a, another point, like you just said, you're like, OK, maybe I'm not too old for this or maybe I'm going to go through another phase with this. And then you start doing adult things on Halloween or right? going to adult Halloween parties. And, you know, as they say in England, the fancy dress party. Right. And, yep. you know, you, you end up, you know, you can take it to a whole new level. And then you have cosplayers who every day is Halloween for them. So, you know, it, it's it's just a fun time of year. Um, you've got, you know, every streaming service on the planet with their version of, you know, uh, some kind of uh, streaming Halloween experience, uh, you know. And that's what I want to talk about. 
you, just like me, are a horror movie fanatic, horror television fanatic. Uh, we talk all the time via Instagram Messenger um, about this, that, and the other thing. But we always we always compare notes on what we're watching and in also what we're reading, right? Because you're also you're also an avid reader, like I am, and you appreciate just good storytelling. And that was one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on the show. Oh, absolutely. I uh, grew up watching horror movies. My sisters, when I was born, were in their teenage years. So they were in the, the spooky movies and, you know, having slumber parties with their friends and watching scary movies. And they just loved to terrify me by renting the scariest movies they could find, which is usually like it, the, the original it, um, you know, they always used to pick on me with Friday the 13th and say, you're Jason, you're Jason. And uh, that was kind of funny. Cause when that, when Jason, I think it was Jason goes to hell came out. I remember the trailer, seeing the trailer for the first time I was at my kitchen table. I was living in Hemlock and my grandmother was over and it, you know, the trailer plays at the end. It goes, Jason goes to hell. I go, look, grandma, I'm going to hell. And she like almost died. She goes, don't say that. Don't say that. Don't say that. <laughs> and so that, <laughs> and, uh, you know, so like movies like, uh, children under the stairs. I remember the day, what the day was like. We walked down to the old gas station that had VHS tapes that you could rent. And, uh, we walked back and my sister put it in and it was children under the stairs and it just blew my mind as a kid and terrified me, but at the same time fascinated me. And my, and it was always a great connection with my sister because then they'd start laughing because I'd get scared. And so horror movies have a special place in my heart. I tell people they're like my Marvel movies. Like I didn't really grow up reading, reading comic books, but horror, horror movies always fascinate me just because the, the play of the emotion and, how 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 the terror is built yeah absolutely it's an art form uh you know being able to create dread and fear and not not relying on you know tricks like like jump scares now i like a good jump scare every now and again um let's talk about your sister stacy for a second yeah she has an irrational fear I, well i can't say irrational because i really don't care for the fuckers either but she's got a thing for clowns and, yeah, and, yeah. <laughs> and, and frankly, she's probably sick and tired of me doing it, but it doesn't mean I'm going to stop uh, of sending her any and every clown thing I can find. And for some reason, she doesn't want to go in on a vacation to the clown motel in Nevada. I don't understand why. <laughs> I thought about yeah, buying yeah. the freaking place. That's a head scratcher right there. <laughs> <laughs> but, but then again, your other sister has a problem with gnomes. Yeah, so I was going to bring that up, is that it's kind of interesting. Everybody has their own little fears and yeah, something that scares them. Yeah, and it's so funny because they, they always tell me, Stephanie and Stacy both tell me, when we find out what you're afraid of, we're going to torment you with it. The problem is pictures of what I'm afraid of don't do anything to scare me. It's seeing them in real life. i got to thing about spiders and seeing pictures of them, I'm like, oh, isn't it cute? Let me go get the flamethrower. Uh, but, but it's, but it's the real life, right? Spider it's it's what bothers me. And, and, and it's not even if I'm expecting one to be there, it doesn't bother me. It's when you open that shower curtain and there's a big black spider where it's not supposed to be. That's when it gets me. So let's get you. You were also in Los or, uh, Southern California for a while too, weren't you? Oh, we had black widows. So, you know, as you can imagine, my, my fear of spiders is, is not irrational. I, you know, (laughs) and my wife found a tarantula in the pool trap one time. So, 
Oh, man. Yeah. So spiders are a real-life menace, if you ask me. Um, let's... Here, here it's just daddy long legs, so. Yeah, there you they're go. Chill, they're chilling me. But I wanted to. Do, I want to kind of want to dive deeper into that because I noticed a lot of people have that fear of spiders, and to me, they don't really bother me too much. Like the other night, I was laying in bed, I couldn't really sleep, and all of a sudden, one of those wolf spiders crawled crawled across my wall, and it kind of startled me. But it wasn't like, oh my god, I need to get out of bed and run away. So yeah. I wonder if it's the uh, eight legs and just they're one of the only creatures that have that many legs and the way they move and crawl. I, I just. I guess I just don't understand the psychology between why so many people are so terrified of because it's not like people are dying of spiders every day, you know. It's not like fair, you know. No, I yeah. get that, and and the thing of it is, they're actually beneficial, right? They they're not they're not uh, they're not a pest, right? So you you know you don't have this urge like like ants or uh, fleas or or any cockroaches or anything like that. The urge to stamp them out, right? You just I don't know. Yeah, I think you hit on something. There's something alien about them, right? Let's get yeah, into yeah. Uh, let's get into uh, the reason for the season, the horror film, the horror story, right? I mean, you know, Halloween as a thing has been around for for a long, long time, but uh, the horror film itself um, has its origins in the 1920s, uh, as we as we know it today, with Nosferatu and and uh, you know, Phantom of the Opera. And when we get into the thirties, we get into the talkies and, and, you know, the universal monster verse, which I'm a, a big fan of. And, and, um, uh, I really enjoy and always have. And a lot of those monsters came from literature, right? So, you know, a lot of really good stuff comes from books, comes from literature. And then you have, stuff that comes from the minds of screenwriters and directors and that kind of thing. And you sent me a link to a YouTube video tonight to watch before the show that kind of merges the two, right? You have yeah, Stephen, well, Stephen King's shining the shining and the movie made by Stanley Kubrick, which Stephen King absolutely hated. And oh, yeah, yeah, that's well documented. Right. And so I'll let you take the listener through this, but it's an interest. I'm not one for fan theories. I really don't care for them. I'm, I'm, you know, but when you dissect a movie like this video did and explain this possibility, because everybody's wondering why did Kubrick change so many things from the novel? Now I've never read the novel, but the two things that I know about it, Jack Torrance is an abusive alcoholic and there are ghosts. And when you get into the movie, that's what you think you're, you're watching. But Kubrick changed so much that, that King hated it. This theory, this video you had me watch, tells a very, very interesting story and, and raises an interesting possibility. Yes. And I want to preface this by saying that it's only a theory and that, but it's, I think if you've seen the room 239 documentary about all the different Kubrick theories that he put into that movie about native American, uh, essentially native American slavery and the moon landing and, uh, things like that. Those, those theories were almost kind of ancillary and too far out there at moments to where they were very definitely interesting. You can definitely watch the movie under that lens, but at the same time, 
in the back of your head, like, yeah, something isn't lining up. And I think there's a lot of fans of the shining that always think that there's a, it's almost like a, an onion. There's layers to it. So as you dig deeper, you're noticing small things that Kubrick's placing in, in the background and in the foreground and, and what he's doing with the characters and how they're acting. And if you know anything about Kubrick, he's intensely, intensely OCD, almost OCD. I can't even, I don't want to play arm, armchair psychologist because I feel like a lot of people do that nowadays. But let's he, just say meticulous. He, meticulous, yes, yes. And, you know, he really tormented Shelley Duvall during the filming and just trying to get every scene perfect. And you can see how perfect that movie is just in the way that Jack Nicholson really puts himself out there with his facial expressions. And you can tell they really worked at that movie to get every little detail right. And yeah, so. I- and the thing about Kubrick, right, when you think about it for a second, and, and the biggest fan theory is, oh, they're just continuity errors. And, and when you think about the Overlook Hotel, which is actually a real place, I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head, but it's a real place. And when you think about how big this the set would be, right, you know, there's an awful lot of stuff that you'd have to move around for no damn reason for it to be continuity problems. And Kubrick's the guy who did 2001 A Space Odyssey. You want to talk about meticulous detail, um, got to get it right. And, and it's, it's almost, I mean, it's a crazy movie, but it's almost a flawless movie, right? So when you look at everything that everybody's, oh, continuity or, you know, Kool-Aid on the shelf in one scene and not in the other or a rug pattern wrong in, in one place and right in the other or this piece of furniture moved... That's that's fun. You want to do that in one scene? You want to move a lamp? That's one thing. It's another thing to watch this video you sent me and look at all the instances where something had changed. It's almost like the Matrix, right? This deja vu. That means they've changed something, right? And it's really, really yeah. interesting. Uh, so I'll, I'll leave you to uh, explain the theory. All right. Yeah, so, so you did a good job of like explaining like what the issue that people have with this theory is that everybody's just saying, Oh, it's continuity issue, but they're not really thinking about the psychology that Kubrick brings to his films and how meticulous he is to where that almost just that fact alone almost kills their notions of it's continuity error, which some of it may be, which you always have to leave open that little possibility that there was a little bit of continuity error just because no human could be that perfect, but Kubrick, it, in most instances was that perfect. So I'll let, I'll let you decide at the yeah. end of this, but yeah. And, and, you and know, we'll point you towards that YouTube video too. So, yeah. And but you know, and you know, the thing about it is they have people, right. They always have a continuity person, right. And it's their job to make sure that lamps in the same place, the couches in the same place, the chair, the rug. And it just, there's so much in this video that they explain that, that changes from scene to scene or moment to moment. Like, there's no way this is an accident. It had to be planned. Yeah, and that was the thing about Kubrick, too, is that Kubrick didn't go out and get these big staffing productions. He kept a tight-knit group that he could trust with each movie that kind of, like, knew on his wavelength what he wanted in each scene and could set it up, and then he'd come in and just touch it up. He was almost kind of like they already knew what he wanted to paint, but then he'd come in and just move the details around and shift them around and play with them and kind of move the cameras around. So it, by, by that point he had already worked with that crew for such a long time that 
the continuity errors with this theory and this video, which the, which is ultimately called the Wendy theory. So it almost, in summary of what the theory is, is that the movie isn't about Jack at all. It's about more about Wendy. And what it explains is that, I'm not going to explain the whole thing because it's a 45-minute video, but <laughs> some of <laughs> That, that would just, you know, I could go into every detail of the video, but then it just ruined, you know, the excitement of actually watching the video. But but what it touches upon is essentially that Wendy is schizophrenic and that there's hallucination scenes that are interchanged with these scenes of Jack becoming angry. And when Jack becomes angry and ornery and is shouting at her, she's really hallucinating that and kind of buying into this lie that she built up because she has been the one that's been abusing Danny and kind of hallucinating about Danny talking to his friend in his head in the beginning when he's, you know, wiggling his finger like a worm and, and speaking in the mirror and some of the continuity then early on in the video, yeah, you'll just talk it up to continuity. But then the one, the one that really got me wasn't even, what was the one that for, I'll just leave it to you. What was the one that got you where it kind of, piqued your interest and you're like wait a minute there's something here how did jack get out of the freezer oh. that that had never really been answered we never really knew that right and that i yep. mean it, it was a cumulative effect the, the the video had right but it was you know it was the the moving furniture i think the kool-aid the kool-aid was was the one that really got my attention and said, okay, this guy's on to something. Right. So Wendy yep. hit Wendy has Kool-Aid in the apartment on, on top of the, the refrigerator. And now it's in the cooler where it wasn't before. Right. So there's, and then, and then, just the scene, and then just the scene right after that, it's gone again. Right. And, and that happens to a lot of furniture throughout the movie. And, um, what the one that got me was the dopey sticker on the, mm. on the door. Yeah. 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 And, and and then all of a sudden it's not there. And when they explain that Wendy's the reader of the family and she's reading Catcher in the Rye, which is a big story about the struggles with mental illness and loneliness and isolation. And it's a, it's a very, very interesting theory. And I, I think any, any fan of The Shining needs to watch it. I agree with you. And here's, here's my take on it. If the video is right, if the theory is correct, this is some genius level fucking filmmaking. Um, you know what it was, you know what it was, the, the thing that got me was Wendy in the door, in the transition, in the doorway, right? So she really was oh, the yeah. one in room 237. She's the one who had abused Danny. And, and here's the thing. It would be just like Stanley Kubrick to take the story of the shining, which is about Jack and, and being an abusive alcoholic, um, which you know, Dr. Sleep ends up being an extension of that and, you know, plays on continuing to play on the shine and, and all of that stuff. Um, but it would be just like Stanley Kubrick to take King's original story and original vision and turn it on its head. Yep. And I think it would also be Stanley Kubrick to kind of put a different thematic spin on that. Um, it's interesting how well he hit it because I think this is a relatively new fan theory. This didn't pop up in the seventies when it first came out. Um, yeah. So a lot of people have wondered it's, it's, why Kubrick did what he did. And, you know, 
it, it makes this video is is probably the one thing that makes the most flipping sense, right? So let's talk about some other let's talk about some movie franchises, right? So a lot of stuff's been in the news lately about the Halloween franchise, and and uh, I I kind of want to compare it to another movie franchise that's near and dear to my heart. And I know Halloween is big for you. Um, I wrote a blog post about the Alien movie franchise and how that went off the rails and I detailed kind of the moments when that happened and I almost have a similar sense and a similar feeling with the Halloween franchise obviously John Carpenter 1978 creates the slasher movie as we know it and it becomes a subgenre that persists to this day and is probably more prevalent than any other uh, subgenre, right? Because vampires and zombies and, and werewolves are all cyclical. They, they come and they go. But the slasher film has become really, really persistent over the course of the last 40 years or so. And the thing about it is, when we get to Halloween 3, it's not Michael Myers anymore. It really isn't a Halloween movie at all. It stands on its own. It should have been called Season of the Witch and uh, is totally different. And when we get beyond that, we try to resume the Michael Myers, Laurie Strode mythos. It really goes awry. And in the last, you know, Rob Zombie had his take on it. He did his two Halloween movies, uh, which I found were fascinating and interesting. Obviously, not John Carpenter canon. But then the last couple of years, we've had uh, Halloween in 2018, which I actually saw in the theater on Halloween weekend, and then. The new one, Halloween Kills, and this all kind of, you know, reconnects the continuity of, of the mythos of, of the Halloween franchise. And I just think, from my personal opinion, and I haven't seen the new one, that we're so far afield from the original films, the original two, that this that this just needs a mercy killing and we need to be done with it. And I didn't think the film in 2018 added anything to the narrative. It didn't add anything new, not even creativity in the kills or, or, I mean, it was so predictable. You knew who was going to die and in what order and all this other stuff. I don't know anything about the new one. I know you're a fan. Um, and, and that'll lead into my point we'll make later on about that kind of thing. But you know, what is your take on the, the state of the Halloween franchise? Why does it resonate with you? Um, and, and, you know, expound on that if you would yeah so a moment ago you were talking about how like spiders just scared the ever-loving shit out of you and we kind of talked about that and what makes spiders so creepy and to me when i was growing up and like i said i grew up with two teenage sisters and slashers were always on the docket for me when i was growing up and i was two years old and having nightmares at night and the nightmare i had the most consistent was of being chased or stalked by a killer. And one of my earliest nightmares, actually, um, this is going to sound like spiritual mumbo-jumbo, and I think it's even crazy, but the earliest nightmare I've ever had was being chased in a field. I was dressed up as, like, a, a soldier in the old-time Native American wars, and there was a group of Native Americans chasing me. So I've always had this fear of being chased or stalked, and when I started viewing these kind of horror movies, it kind of molded into a, a 
normal nightmare would be looking out my window, seeing a Michael Myers type figure out in my field. And I go to the front door to lock the door and he's right there in my window and in the front door. And it's kind of like that Michael Myers ever morphing shape that just appears places. And you don't know how, how he got there so quickly and that kind of stuff. So I think that's the reason it resonates with me. And then plus I love the seasons and fall. So when you see Haddonfield and it's a nice fall, you know, cause everything's wrapped into that. Cause that's the time of the year when you go back to school. So those memories of school come back and you see Lori Stroud with her friends walking down the street. And, but then there's always that ever present danger behind her stalking her. And I've always thought that kind of tension that Carpenter played with was really interesting. And it was kind of almost the real depiction of that kind of terror coming into anybody's neighborhood. So I always thought that was pretty interesting. There's a great documentary um, series called The Films That Made Us. And uh, I can't remember which streaming service it's on. It might be on Netflix where yep, yep. I, I just watched it recently, the Halloween episode. And they talked about the, the film distributor who actually uh, helped uh, Carpenter bankroll the film. And one of the things they talked about was no blood, no blood. We don't want, you know, buckets of blood on the screen. And I think that was one of the things that helped make the original 1978 film that much more suspenseful. Now, what I'm trying to figure out is how in the world did Michael Myers learn how to drive? But that's that's a, a plot hole for another time. Um, but I think you're I think you're right. And, I, you know, there's a reason why this film is in, in the top five of my all time favorite horror films. And the thing about it is you're you're dead on where we grew up and you more so because you were a little more out in the weeds i grew up in the city and in, in rochester small town life <laughs> yep yeah you were you were out there uh, a little further out than i was you you grew up in a freaking stephen king novel I, I mean you really did from an atmosphere standpoint from a uh, you know just weather and everything else you know i'm in the city with my plastic halloween costume and my stupid mask if, if it was a year that my father didn't make a costume for me. Um, but yeah, where we grew up, I mean, this, this kind of thing is, you know, Haddonfield could be, you know, freaking Livonia for crying out loud or, or, you know, anywhere along five and 20. Right. So or Dansville, we have the castle yeah. on the hill in Dansville and that's yep. a known, well, folklore says it's haunted. Um, but that's like a spooky old castle that's up on a hill. And uh, we used to sneak up there as kids and go drink beer on the roof and, so it, that's those are the reasons that I think horror movies in general really stick with me because it's like, okay, October's here, you know, shutters, the shutter streaming service is on. You can have your you can have your pick. You can watch Korean horror. You can watch. Oh my, yeah. <laughs> right. But, and yeah. It, you know, it's uh, it's funny because you, you just, I wonder what my mom would have thought of all the, the Korean programming and especially like the Korean horror films. I wonder what she would have thought of uh, Squid Game. Uh, which I just watched uh, recently. Um, you know, my mom was uh, was from Korea, and I just I, I do I wonder what she would think of the whole thing. You're listening to the Get the Knack podcast. I'm your host Jerry Knack, and I'm joined by aspiring writer and God knows what else. I don't think he's figured it out. My my dear cousin Jason Steele. Um, Jason, we are uh, we're we're related. Um, in a strange and interesting way, our family tree is not so much a tree, it's a bush. And um, 
some time ago you uh, you wrote a short story about your grandfather. And, yes. And your your grandfather Edwin Nemitz was was one of my uh, you know one of my father's uh, closest uh, cousins and uh, your grandparents were two of the nicest people I ever met in my life uh, Edwin and Shirley Nemitz. Um, what inspired that that short story? Um, memories. He had passed away and I was at a vulnerable time in my life. I was growing up and I was fresh out of high school and it was, I think it was the summer that I left high school and graduated and I was figuring it all out. I had just come back from the Culinary Institute of America, deciding I did not want to be a chef and didn't want to commit my hours to that kitchen lifestyle. And so I was helping my grandfather out a lot at, at his house and, you know, tarring the chicken, the, the chicken coop house because he had a giant apple orchard and a giant willow tree, just this huge backyard, acres and acres. And every year it was a party every year. Well, every, every holiday it was a party rather every year, every year it was uh, just a blast because we had these moments in time where the entire family would get together on the Nemitz side. And uh, we had this whole backyard to romp around in and play in. And I'd help him dig out the ditches and get the yard ready and get the apple orchard ready. And when he passed, it was it was a tough time. Um, I was kind of young to, you know, now, now I realize the finality and all. But at the time, I was dealing with other things. And it was just a... Uh, it was a rough time and I was laying in bed one night and I just felt like writing. And a lot of my inspiration comes when I'm most emotional or there's kind of turmoil in my life or there's something, you know, dramatic going on. And I just sit down and write and kind of let my emotions, like the muse carry my emotions rather. And, uh, that, that's where it came from was just how I felt about him and how kind he was and how the apples, because it, the short story or it's a creative nonfiction piece. It's a very short piece that I wrote. I just wanted to keep it concise and, and filled with emotion and kind of paint this awesome picture of how much of an awesome guy he was, um, how giving he was and how kind and willing to laugh and, and everything else. So that, that, that was the, the big inf- inspiration for it. Yeah. It's funny. I remember reading it when you wrote it and, uh, it, it was very moving. Um, it's it's interesting because two Nemitz brothers married two Knack sisters, and that's how we're related. And yes, <laughs> and and Edwin Nemitz came came from all of that, and and obviously, uh, you know, Shirley was uh, his his wife for for a long time. Um, yes, yes, yes. But was was, and, uh, and was how they met was pretty interesting too. Um, I don't know if you know that story. No, I don't. Uh, give me one second to kind of set this up, and we'll kind of you know I didn't mean to put you on the spot, but your your response and your reaction is is why I did it. Um, and you know, oh, absolutely. Um, so what what's crazy about this is. My parents passed, your grandparents passed, and then my father's sister and her husband died, I want to say, all within three years. Oh, wow. It was nuts. 
from 2006 to like 2009, we lost a lot of people. And yes, yes. like, like foundational people. Like, so our, our, um, so my grandfather was one of 12 kids, right? So this is where this all comes from. And, you know, to lose six people like that within that amount of time, because I remember when your grandparents passed, I was just absolutely stunned because the timing was just unbelievable. Um, but no, I do not know the story of how your, your grandparents met. I just know they were two of the sweetest people I've ever known. So please indulge me. <laughs> yeah. So when, uh, my grandfather was in the army, his best friend was dating my grandmother and they were engaged and my grandfather slowly swooned her and she ended up marrying my grandfather <laughs> instead of my grandfather's best friend. But then my grandfather's best friend met my grandmother's best friend and they got married. So they'd always go back and forth and play cards in Florida and stuff. So I think it was, this, you know, signs of the time stuff. Cause nowadays I don't think that would fly too much. They'd be bashing each other on social media and <laughs> flying off the cuff on each other. And <laughs> uh, we're, we're doing that now. Um, your mom, uh, you know, your mom and, and obviously your aunt uh, are, are very active on Facebook and, you know, your mom, uh, Becky and your aunt Jackie and, or excuse me, your aunt Nancy, excuse me, I'm getting families mixed up here. Your aunt Nancy, um, yeah. you know, some, some, some great folks. And, and, you know, the last time I actually heard your voice, it was about nine years ago. So we, we talk all the time via social media and messaging apps and stuff. But last time I heard your voice was nine years ago at the family reunion. So, um, yeah, this is much easier than typing back and forth. I don't yeah, know why we yeah, don't do it that, more often. Well, I, yeah, <laughs> I keep telling you to call me. Holy shit. Anyway, Jason, let's uh, let's get back into the discussion at hand. Right? Let's talk about, uh, you know, kind of the state of horror films, because I keep going back to the classics. I You know, I, I own a lot of them on DVD, but, you know, the, the universal films. But, you know, I keep going back to stuff. I just watched The Body Snatcher with Boris Karloff, and it's not the alien one. It's a totally different thing. It's about grave robbing and that kind of thing uh, from the 1940s. And it was a Bella Lugosi had a minor role in it, and it was uh, just a deliciously creepy movie. Uh, you know, I keep going back to that kind of thing as opposed to newer films, and I'll get to that in a second. And you brought up Native American stuff a little while ago, and I, and I want to get into that. Um you know, a film like *Malignant* has it. It created this this firestorm on social media. Either you loved it or you hated it, and I happen to hate it. My best friend, who lives in in Rochester, uh, you know, he he thought I was crazy. His son thought I was crazy. You know, they they said it was this James Wan's uh, homage to giallo filmmaking of Dario Argento and Mario Bava and. And I think Argento and Bava would slap the shit out of James Wan for what he, <laughs> what he attempted. Um, but, you know, you you seem to lean towards some of the, the crazier, um, you know, splatter type horror in the stuff that you like. Oh, absolutely. And what I loved about Malignant was I kind of got tipped off early on with it 
Um, I read this one. The, I was reading reviews, and one guy said it's an homage to Basket Case. And mm. what 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 I heard was that James Wan wanted to make Basket Case again, and the studio didn't want him to. So then he wrote Malignant and kind of switched it up a little bit. But that was like his homage to Basket Case. So going in and knowing that. I just wasn't taking it seriously, and I heard that there was uh, some interesting things that start to happen, so I was waiting for that to happen. Um, yes, the acting could definitely be better, um, <laughs> but at the same time, for what it was and how stupid it was, and stupid in a good way, I'll, I'll say that, okay. stupid in a good way, and that that that's what I expected, and you know, James Wan has that clean style to it, to his films, and but then you see somebody marching backwards and just destroying people and destroying police officers. And it's, you know, I don't want to, are we allowed to spoil things on here? <laughs> sure. But, but I mean, I give Zoe Bell the, the probably the greatest stunt woman of all time credit for, for bringing that, that whole thing to life. And I love Zoe Bell ever since, you know, death proof, but you know, I, I there's just so much, in it that i mean i don't it's really weird how i think about things it's like i need it to be believable and it's not believable it's like they say you know real life doesn't make any sense but fiction has to i I, I don't know how i feel about it And, and i love james wan because he reinvented the ghost story right and 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 the thing about about that is we went through this long period of time without very good ones or nor none at all and all of a sudden here's the conjuring universe never mind yep. insidious which i'm not a big fan of but here's the conjuring universe and the guy has reimagined a ghost story in a good way and then he comes you know i saw the buzz for this i saw the trailer i'm like oh i can't wait a new horror film i can latch onto cuz so much new horror is absolute garbage and you know I'll give you an example. So I like to just look at the different streaming services and I'll do a search for Dracula movies or vampire movies just to see. There's a reason why people are disenfranchised or disenchanted with vampire movies. There is an awful lot of schlock and garbage out there. That's not even, I love schlock horror. It's not even worth my time. This thing, this malignant thing is just, I, I don't didn't know what to make of it. It starts with science gone wrong at the beginning, and then it's then it's uh, you know that um, uh, what do you call it that, that the twin in the womb that doesn't you know the unabsorbed oh, yeah. right, and then it becomes yeah, that yeah. thing, it, which you know that was the premise of Stephen King's The Dark Half, you know the the absorbed twin, um, and you know it just kind of went went really goofy from there and you know then next thing you know the thing knows kung fu i'm like what the fuck is this well and also supernatural powers because it can turn off on and off lights yeah right and then (laughs) it can talk i'm like oh geez now the flip side to that is right and and i don't what was it uh psycho gorman you were trying to tell me about you're you were into for a minute like these, yes, these, Psycho Gorman, and then there's the Nick Cage stuff. And I didn't like Mandy. Mandy, I didn't no, like too I much. No, I didn't but, like either. I didn't know, but I love the color out of space. If you I have not seen that yet. You got to check I, that I was out. Men- I was going to mention, uh, what was the one? I- it's the Willie's Playhouse one where he's in there with all the, the yeah, uh, doubt or the. Yeah. 
the yeah. animatronics. Right. That was right. a really fun movie. I really enjoyed that. It was almost like a hobo with a shotgun type vibe. Like Nick Cage doesn't talk through it. He just kicks ass. And, <laughs> and Maybe that's and the but, best but, way to have Nick Cage. Just shut up and do stuff. But that was another malignant. That was just stupid for the sake of being stupid. Like Nick Cage is playing pinball and he's like rubbing himself and drinking the soda, this energy drink. And every time he kills one, he goes back and plays pinball and drinks this energy drink. And oh there's God. a whole montage with an orchestra and stuff. And but then, but then the kills are stupid and the movie's just stupid fun. And and I as I as I grow older, I'm also more apt to have stupid fun like that. I think just because I'm not taking it as seriously as i once did i used to be a you know arguing with people oh that movie's so stupid how could you like that movie but then like you said before this conversation we were talking about just realizing that people like what they like like i'm not a big superhero movie fan i do not watch the marvel movies i don't have any interest in them i just think it's just cgi action for the sake of cgi action thrown in your face at 100 miles per hour you can't you can't even think after the movie's over you can't remember what even what happened and that's my opinion on it but i understand that people love that you're but, confusing marvel uh, with dc but anyway i digress yes well, <laughs> that, that's how little i know because it's all just the same to me i, I who's in dc who's in marvel I, it's, it's I get it, but it. I get it. it. It does seem like this this huge blender of of costumed freaks, right? I, I get it. Um, well, what it is now is just brands. It's brands being pushed without any substance, and it's across the board. It's in across every genre, I think. Because they're aren't they bringing back a Sex in the City movie? I, I heard they're, something about that. They're bringing Scream back. There's going to be a new Scream movie, which I've never seen any Scream movie at all, which me being a horror movie fanatic seems sacrilegious. I have to reprimand you for that. That's blasphemy. (laughs) All right. I have an excuse. I was out of the country. I was in the service. I was in the Navy. I was doing stuff. How many years? How many years? uh, (laughs) Ten years. Uh, 87 to 97 isn't that when all the scream movies happen and i love wes craven i mean you mentioned people under the stairs at the top of the show i mean you know and wes craven actually was behind a very underrated horror movie called they and if you if you get a chance watch they it's it's about it's about night terrors but they're really real it's it's really dark and disturbing it's a great movie um you know i have a, a thing about atmosphere this time of year when it comes to my horror films right i you know uh if if you've seen um if you uh, scary stories to tell in the dark right it's it's it happens in this small town in pennsylvania and and the atmosphere is pitch perfect it's it's you know i have a thing for atmosphere and and it's a kids movie it's a young adult movie and you know i i took uh took my 15 year old now 15 year old to go see it when it came out and you know we liked it we enjoyed it it was it was you know dark and entertaining and and it was all about atmosphere and i think you know what we were talking about about the halloween movie uh in that franchise it's about that that atmosphere i don't know if you've seen trick or treat or not um but it just seems like not any old horror movie will do this time of year i mean i know a lot of people like They'll watch things like the original uh, Thing, right? The Thing from Outer Space or Body Snatchers or things like that. And and I just, I don't know, there's something about this time of year in the, in the, the correct atmosphere 
for for a horror movie, and I think that's why Halloween for me this time of year resonates. It's just like you. Yes, yes, and and really that atmosphere is for any movie. Any movie that has a great atmosphere to it is going to be a great movie, and or it will at least cover up a lot of hindrances to a bad movie if it has a good atmosphere. Um, but at the same time, um, I uh, the atmosphere aspect to it, I was just wowed. I don't know. I I can't remember what your feelings on this movie was, but Hereditary and Midsummer, the Ari Aster films. Yeah, so I I have mixed feelings about both. Midsummer I wanted to like. It's a beautiful film. Um, there's just the storytelling is just really weird to me in that one. I liked Hereditary a lot more. Um, there's some batshit crazy moments in Hereditary. Some of the, some of the some people might argue that there there's some of the the best moments in horror history. Right, the whole thing when when the the little girl freaking loses her head. Um, you know, oh, that was shocking. Oh my God. You know, and it's got Tony Collette who has become horror movie royalty. Right. Uh, you know, so she's become one of the, the best, greatest modern scream Queens and, uh, you know, going back to Sixth sense and bottom line is, I think I, I like hereditary. I, I wish, I wish some more of the, uh, you know, the mythology behind the demon was, was present throughout. Um, but that movie, uh, I had to watch it a couple of times. And uh, Gabriel Byrne, unfortunately, gets a, a raw deal in that movie. Poor guy. Um, yeah, the whole family does. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. But Tony Collette. It's like, why, why would the grandmother do that? Like, right, like what was her? What, yeah. what, got, what, what got her? And like, but that's why I hope is I hope they don't like make like a prequel, like where they talk about the grandmother. And, no, like, this, no, no, no. Because then it just get too over the top. And they, you know. Midsummer but. reminds me too much of the Wicker Man. I, I think it's it's a it's kind of an updated version of that. And um, speaking of Nick Cage, but you know the original is is a fantastic classic horror film. Um, but yeah, I, I enjoyed Hereditary definitely more than Midsummer. Um, you know, we could talk about films like The Witch, which took me two or three times to to watch to to really really appreciate. The trailer was spectacular, and then the film itself. Uh, you know, some of the thick supposed 1600s language got in the way. And I, I have a real problem with, with, you know, action happening off screen. Show it to me. Don't, don't have it happen off screen. I need to see it. Show it to me. Things like Bird Box, right? If you ever watch, if you, if you ever saw Bird Box, I need to see the oogity boogity. I need to see the monster. I don't need it to be this imaginary thing. Um, even a, even a, a, a ghost story, you know, you, you got, you know, you can use your imagination when, when the ghost is throwing people around or moving things, but you know, a movie like bird box, I got to see the, I got to see the scary monster. I have to, um, it's just kind of how my it's, mind works. It's a fine line. I think, I think there's a time and place to not show, show too much, but then there's also a time and place to show too much. Um, I don't disagree with that. Right. And, you know, I mean, again, we go back to uh, atmosphere and, and you like what you like. I mean, there's, there's a lot of people out there who think Cabin in the Woods is one of the greatest horror films ever made. And I think it's somewhere in the middle. Um, you know, I, people, I agree with that. Uh, yeah. People like It Follows and I don't understand. I don't that was, get I it. wanted to bring that up. I haven't seen that yet. I have to see it just to see because I've seen it all the time. People are saying it's the best horror movie to come out in the last 25, 30 years. And, 
Um, I just have not seen it yet. I have to, I have to sit down and watch that this year. And every time somebody puts that on one of those lists, I'm like, no, no, it's not. And so, yeah, you got to watch it, judge it for yourself. Things like, and that. I really don't know much about it except that it's some, some kind of metaphor for an STD. And it sure and, is. That's exactly yeah. what it is. And then a movie, you know, like an Iranian film, like, uh, you know, a girl walks home alone at night. You know, everybody's, oh, yeah, this is a great vampire film. It's fantastic. It's this, that, and the other thing. I, I tried like, watching that. I fell asleep twice. Yeah, same me. Same with me. I have a problem that, with nonlinear storytelling. I have a confession to make. It. I fell asleep four times during The Witch. I've tried to watch that <laughs> because I love the style of it. And yes. I love... I love the stories of witches, but it's like every time I put it on for it's it's almost like the others. I used to do that with the others with Nicole Kidman. Mm-hmm. Is I love the movie to death, and I love, but it was just something about it just put me to sleep. I don't know. <laughs> maybe maybe it's just twisted that I fall asleep to horror movies, but I don't know. I get it. I I understand. I you know I put stuff on to fall asleep to at night. You know, and. There's a H.P. Lovecraft documentary I've been watching on Amazon Prime. I think I've watched it about 20 times now, but I fall asleep to it. And it's got yeah. people in it like Neil Gaiman and Guillermo del Toro and people like that. Uh, you know, and, and it's it's a few years old, but but it's a pretty good documentary, and I like it. I enjoy it, and I fall asleep to it. Um, we're, you you brought it up earlier, and I wanted to talk to you about it because I've, I've been talking to – you're not the only person I've, I've discussed this with. Let's let's talk about Native American folklore for a minute. Um, Antlers is coming out uh, soon this weekend, I believe. And you know, somebody described it as a creature feature. Somebody else said it's it's more Wendigo. It's it's this that or the other thing. Um, I've been reading Stephen Graham Jones of late, and and uh, the only good Indians, and I I've started uh, My Heart Is a Chainsaw, and I think you know one of the things that um, you know, I talked to uh, my my good friend Mark London Williams, who who wrote a, a vampire, or excuse me, a zombie book not that long ago. We were talking about kind of what's next in monster storytelling, and I think as much as we're getting out of the you know Southeast Asia with uh, Japan and and Korean uh, horror stories, I think the untapped is Native American folklore. And, and I think we're starting to see some of that start to come out in literature and we're starting to see it start to come out more in, uh, in, in films. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Films like the ritual. And I think, I think, I think it's almost, you know, what, what was the thing before it ghosts? It was almost like ghosts and Amityville horror came back and that was the ebbs and flows of that. That's what you were talking about earlier was the ebbs and flows of horror and how these things kind of shift into focus for the social unconscious. And then they kind of go away once it becomes too oversaturated, which I think um, the one Netflix, the, that latest, what was the one where they all go to Vegas? And it was uh, the Zack Snyder, the last dead film. Yeah, that was, I don't remember what the hell it was. It was another I think that n- put living the cap on night zombies. of the li- Yeah, another night of the living dead. And you know, my thing with um, with The Walking Dead is once that became the preferred horror television of soccer moms, you lost me. I, I can't do it anymore. Once that, it's really weird. I, I prefer my horror to be on the, the fringe and not in the mainstream. I don't know why that is. But, and I, I also think that Walking Dead would have done much better on a platform like HBO. 
That way you could actually push it a little bit more. And those kind of shows just kind of bug me because you always have the characters you know will never die. And there's never any just random happening. It's all planned out. There's never like, oh, no, I brushed up against some steel brush and then, you know, zombie infected me that way is where something happened where, you know, just a random infection. They don't even know how they got bit or how it happened. And, you know, I just wanted Daryl to die the entire time just because everybody <laughs> loved him so much. I'm just like, just kill this dude off, please. Like, just be done he's walking with it. around with <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Take <know>. some chances. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I know. It's 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 crazy. Um, I would have preferred it to be on something that, that, you know, took the handcuffs off. I It lost me in season three, and I never went back to it. And... You know, I know a lot of people uh, enjoyed it over the years and, you know. I lasted to season six, so I got a little bit farther than you did. Yeah, and, you know, I love George Romero for what he did in in reinventing the genre with Night of the Living Dead in 1968. And, and, you know, he's given us what we know today as, as zombies. That's the one zombie movie I can watch on Halloween or Halloween weekend. Well, one of my all-time favorites is actually the remake that Sam... Yeah. Sam Raimi made. Yep. Yeah, that's a, that's a good one too. You know, and I grew and, up with that, and I that was one of the movies I'd fall asleep to too. It was actually when I was younger was that that remake of uh, Night of the Living Dead. Yeah, we gotta we gotta find some scary movie uh, that involves gnomes for your sister Stephanie. Um, but yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> we talk about atmosphere with stuff like you know with Stephen King adaptations. It seems like every episode's a Every episode of the Get the Knack podcast that always comes back to Stephen King. Um, but, you know, when we talk about... Stephen- I actually wanted to challenge you on Stephen King. I wanted you to I wanted to challenge you a little bit on your fandom of Stephen King. All right, because we got to talk about it because you're a collector of, of uh, fine Stephen King uh, novel printings. And I'm a little jealous of... Uh, and, and even your mom pointed out to me when when one of the books that you ordered finally came in that you waited what three years for or whatever the fuck it was um <laughs> you know uh our our shared stephen king fandom we talk about uh, on a regular basis but you challenge away go right ahead well i bring this up because i actually feel that you're the bigger stephen king fan like i love stephen king and i've read a lot of his books I have not read him as, and this is the word of the day, meticulously as you have read him. Um, I've read his greatest hits. I still have not read The Shining. Um, So, you know, I'm hit and miss. Like one of my favorite books by him is actually uh, The Long Walk. And that was that was a favorite. That's kind of a hipster thing to pick just because it's a lesser known book. Isn't that one of the Richard Bachman books, though? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was an interesting time in his career because he was found that new fame and he was just trying to do something kind of hidden away from the mainstream and see if he can, you know, tell a story without people knowing that it was him. And and the long walk was interesting in that way because it played with adolescence and how children treat each other. But then these children are putting in put in this adult life or death situation. And, um, so I liked, I liked what he did there. Um, but one of my favorite authors actually is Brett Easton Ellis. And I listened to a lot of his podcasts and he always does a monologue in the beginning. And when he was talking about the move, the new rendition of it, which I absolutely hated and loathed and can't speak 
any worse of was the new the new hits <laughs> um, <laughs> i thought they were just i understand where the studio was coming from with it um but i'm of, I'm of, of two that, minds of the new it yes yes we've discussed that <laughs> yeah, i'm of two minds i think chapter one was pitch perfect i think the the child actors were perfectly cast um i have read the book uh, I endeavored to read the book before It Chapter 2 came out, and I found It Chapter 2 to be abysmal. They they completely and utterly lost the thread that they had created in Chapter 1. And, you know, I've gone back and I've watched the 1990 miniseries not that long ago, and the filmmakers who did that did the same thing as the new filmmakers did and they minimize the adult story. And I think the problem with it is this. Whoever has tried to make film versions of this have completely missed the fucking point. It's about unresolved childhood trauma. And if you tie the children to the adults, you see that they never dealt with their childhood issues. And I, I tell you what, Henry Bowers, the bully, is one of the, the rottenest characters ever created in literature. He's almost worse, if not worse, than Pennywise the Clown. Yes, because he is the giver of trauma in, the, in those kids' lives. One of them, yes. And, and the scene yep. in the book where, where he breaks Eddie Kasprak's arm, I had a physical reaction to and I, yes, yes. And I don't react physically when I read books. And I and I had a hard time with that scene. And you know, I had I had it in my head. I I, I could see Bowers doing it, and I just the snap, the crack of the bone. Oh my god! This was one of the. I mean, there's a lot of scenes. details in that book yeah. that just stuck with me. The uh, the abandoned refrigerators out in the fields that they put oh dogs and cats in, and then eventually a kid and. Talk about not freaking exploring Hochstetter's freaking problems in the movies. Holy shit, was that guy screwed up? Yeah. <laughs> um, you yeah, know. and um, but but you bring up a good point because what what my biggest issue with the new renditions of it is I saw what the movie studios were going for. They were going for the quick buck with making it more of a childish. Um, cotton candy fluff type horror film where creature feature. It's almost. It's almost it's almost just jump scares on top of jump scares, and they're showing Pennywise the Clown way too much. If that would have been a more like hereditary paced dark film where Pennywise is kind of lurking in the shadows and you see quick glimpses of him, but you don't see too much of him, and when when he really comes to get the children, it's very effective. But that's the issue: is that the pacing of the film was just. It just got dull after the first hour, I'd say. I just did not care about anything that was going on. And but but you bring up the casting. I I do agree that the casting was awesome. I think Skarsgård would have been an awesome Pennywise had it not been written the way it was written. Um, but at the same time, you can see what the studio is doing. So I just chalk it up to yeah, it was a money grab. It was just trying to build off the name of it and off of Stephen King and kind of use that brand loyalty and, and wedge its way into a theater release. And but 
My biggest, yeah. well, I had other issues with, with that chapter too, right? I mean, the character of Mike, unfortunately, he ends up painted as a, as this wackaloon. In, in, in the, he's not that way in the book, and he wasn't that way in the 90 miniseries when he's played by Tim Reed of WKRP in Cincinnati fame. Um, the, the problem with the 90 miniseries was Harry Anderson and, and cast as Richie. And he, he, when you go back and you watch it, you're like, you don't realize how overpowering he is in every scene. And he chews the scenery and not in a good way. But when you, some of the adult casting was pretty good in, in chapter two. And some of it was really bad. I was hoping for Amy Adams to play Bev. And we got Jessica Chastain, who's a good actress. She just didn't hit the right notes with it. But you're right. Yeah. You're right about Skarsgård. I think in chapter one, he was fine. In chapter two, it becomes a creature feature, right? And and it, it just, yeah, they, they really, they missed the mark in chapter two. And, and like it, you said, uh, sorry to cut you off there. No, but, no. Um, like, like you were saying, though, it's almost like they missed the mark completely because they make it more about the children, where it's more of an interesting film if you explore where the adults are today and how they see their childhood. And you kind of play it like that, and they're trying to get over their childhood trauma and how that affects them in the present day, and Stan ends up killing himself. So if they almost open up the movie with Stan killing himself without telling you what's going on, and he just leaves that cryptic message, they would almost set up a movie where you could tell the adult story and start off with the adult story instead of the child story. And you could probably easily interweave that Georgie storyline into uh, Bill's Bill's present day trauma that you would open up the movie with. Yeah. I, I don't disagree with you. And, and I think, you know, when you, when you look at it, I mean, we could dissect this 1300 page book six ways to Sunday, but the bottom line is, you know, Bev marries or ends up with a man who's abusive, like her father. Um, Eddie marries a woman who's just like his mother. Bill never deals with Georgie's death, right? Stan, Stan always felt he was the weak link of the Losers Club. So, again, he takes himself off the board um, by killing himself rather than facing Pennywise again, right? Poor Mike is left behind in, in Derry to, to be the, uh, you know, the, the, the storyteller of this whole thing. And that was a part that got left out of Chapter 2 was the fact that, you know, he spent his entire adult life in Derry interviewing people trying to, to piece the whole thing together. How long had Pennywise been there? And, and you know, how many other people had this experience? Why was Derry so rotten? Um, you know, it, it just, you know, I thought Bill Hader did a nice job as, as Richie. He was, you know. Um, and I, I think I think Derry wasn't a big enough character in that movie. No, I think, no, not I at all. I think if you do that movie, Derry has to be the one of the main characters has to be Derry in the way that the townspeople act towards each other. You just, how, yeah, you just hit yeah. on a storytelling element that, that we've talked about before. Cause I know one of your favorite authors is Shirley Jackson. And if you read the haunting of Hill house, there's a town just outside of where that house is that Shirley Jackson makes a character and it's only for a chapter. And there was this this amazing way that she made scenery a character. 
and that's something I've endeavored to do in my writing is to make make you know my books are uh, set in San Francisco. I, San Francisco needs to be a character in the story, right? You just hit the nail on the head with that. Derry was not enough of a character in that. One of the reasons Chapter One resonated with me though is because rather than being set in the fifties like in the book, it was set in the eighties. Those kids would be about the same age as I would have been at that time. And it resonates with me because that was my childhood. Are you talking about the newer film? Or? Yes, yes, the newer film. Oh, okay, yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that, see, that's that nostalgia is everybody has their own experience, so that's why different things connect to different people. That's why, you know, some people love Marvel and DC and other people love horror films. Some people can't watch them at all, and they can only watch dramas or romance films. And so... Well, and it's like like the TV show um, on Netflix, you know, Stranger Things, right? I mean, you look at the time that that's set in, the age those kids are. That's my childhood. That is my experience in the in the mid eighties. Um, you know, with friends and riding bikes and hanging out in places you're not supposed to, and and doing all that stuff that they did, and that's why it chapter one resonated with me so much. Is is you know the movie because. That's my frame of reference, right? So, absolutely. But before we got into that, you know, we were talking about it, and you and I have had conversations about, you know, the part of world, part of the world where you live in now, and I grew up on it as well. You know, when you talk about uh, the Iroquois Nation and that kind of thing, um, you know, I, I gotta think that Native American folklore. I want to get your your thoughts on this even even deeper than than what we touched on. It has really got to be next, right? Stephen King touched on it in Pet Cemetery, right? You know, there's the Wendigo. Um, you know, there there was a running joke throughout the most recent uh, Lone Ranger film with Johnny Depp and uh, I hate to mention him, Army Hammer. Um, <laughs> freaking wackaloon, cannibal, right? Right. Um, but I got to think. I got to th- there's so much of it, right? And it, there's so much Native American folklore. Uh, there there has to be that has to be the next thing in horror, right? Well, I got hints of this when I watched Bone Tomahawk when it first came. Have you seen Bone Tomahawk? I have, and I was kind of disappointed. And and because I thought there was going to be more supernatural to it and it turned out there wasn't. But yeah, it, it was more human conflict. Yeah, it was it was a brutal film, and and I you know I, I found it interesting, and it was it was you know uh, Kurt Russell uh, was in it, and uh, I think it was during a time when uh, Western horrors were kind of a little there's a little blip on the radar for I think a two year period where Western horrors kind of became a thing. Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. Yeah, but you know where we grew up, right? I mean, I had a social studies teacher in junior high that was really big on on uh, Iroquois history and that kind of thing, and. You know, I, I know there's a lot more than Wendigo that, uh, you know, exists. And, and every cult. Seneca. And, yeah. And, and it, yep. there, there just has to be, right? I mean, you mentioned The Ritual, which is a fantastic film. If you haven't seen it, you got to watch The Ritual. But also, you know. Yes, yes. You know, I mean, I mentioned H.P. Lovecraft earlier. And unfortunately, you know, he's complicated and, and you know, difficult to deal with because of, you know, his personal beliefs. But. You know, he created his own mythos, um, you know, with the the elder gods and that kind of thing. And it's been played off of, uh, you know, in uh, with the evil dead and 
uh, Herbert West reanimator and, and some other things. But, you know, there's got to be something that's next in horror, right? Because as much as vampires, werewolves, zombies, and and science gone wrong stuff, you know, keeps coming back around, there's got to be a next, right? There's got to be another, a new monster. There has to be a new thing um, that's, that's just waiting out there. I just wonder what it is. Yeah, I think you're on... I think you're on the right track with that because if you see where horror is going now, you know, cause hereditary just opened up a floodgate of all these wannabe. There's that newer film that just came out about the old watched it and it was just terrible. Um, <laughs> people, it was uh, just a blatant trying too hard to be hereditary and slow paced and demonic energy. And so we're in this demonic energy phase right now where, you know, where there's rituals and cult leaders and, you know, the, the new wrong turn was about a bunch of militia, this militia that kidnaps people and things like that. And so if it's not, if the new genre is not going to be any of the previous monsters, maybe I could definitely see it going towards a more mythology type area. Um, we saw the Green Knight. Have you seen the Green Knight yet? No, I haven't. I have. I've heard good. That's things. That's a divisive film. I've heard good things though. So, and that's more of a King Arthur type mythos. So we're seeing we're seeing these mythologies being played with more and more. I could see you know kind of like a vanguard type mythos coming out, or or a Viking mythos and Norwegian myth. And then we saw the mids with Midsummer, which I wanted to touch upon a little bit more. Um, but. Uh, yeah, the Native American stuff is very interesting. Um, the Genesee Valley is just an, an incredible place to grow up because it was literally forged by a, a glacier that came down through the great northern country of Canada mm -hmm. and came through Lake Ontario and forged this beautiful valley. Um, we have towns like Naples and towns like Canadagua with the Finger Lakes and um naples is a wine valley and it's just hill rolling hills and waterfall trails and just a gorgeous place to grow up and explore and um what the valley was actually used for and what when the u.s military started to grow back after the revolutionary war or during the native american wars actually i misspoke there <laughs> and uh <laughs> so during during those wars with the valley the Genesee Valley was used as like almost like a convoy almost as a guideline for for the army to drive out native americans and there's some interesting stories at a nearby town that i live live close to named mount morris and there's an old tree there where native americans ambushed uh, a small troop of army men and they disemboweled them and nailed one end of their intestines to a tree and made them walk around the tree until their intestines had completely unraveled and That's just left a them there. Happy thought. Yep. So <laughs> there's, a, there's a visual. So it's just the stump of this old tree still there, but it's a historic place. But there's a there's a book called The Burning of the Valley, and it's a very rare book, and I've yet to find or lay my hands on it. But it goes into great detail about how the military battles through this valley and how the native Americans were treated that time during that time and how they fought back during that time and used the valley to their advantage. So there's a lot of history and a lot of historical importance to this area um, because of this valley. And um, 
we have 390 that just runs all the way through it and goes into the southern tier to Ithaca and Watkins Glen and those gorgeous places. And um, essentially, it, the history of it is it's a military route um, where we drove the Native Americans out. <laughs> and there's a lot of dark history and a lot of folklore and a lot of haunted folklore around this area. Um, I've lived in a couple haunted houses. Um, <laughs> so, so I partially believe in it. Um, cause I think there's things I cannot explain and I sound crazy for talking about, but. I, and, hey, and, I gotta say my last house in California was haunted. So don't even, I think, I think my, my dear old dad haunted that place. So yeah, don't, yeah. don't, don't think you're, you're crazy for that. If you've had an experience, <laughs> you've had an experience. I don't believe all these ghost hunter shows. I think they're stupid. Um, but it, you know, personal experience is a personal experience. I'm not a, a God fearing person at all. I am not a religious person, uh, but I've had enough personal experiences, uh, that tell me there's something there. There's something, you know, spooky. Uh, I do, I do. I think my father haunted my house. I really do. Um, yeah. you know, uh, and I have my, well, you know, there, there's, I wrote a blog about it. It's called the haunted, the haunted duck. Um, so if you haven't read it, I encourage you to, uh, I got to tell our listeners cousin, uh, as, as you, as we wind down this episode of the get the knack podcast with my special guest and my cousin, uh, Jason Steele in 2011, I started writing a book and knowing that you were an aspiring writer, you were studying, uh, going to school and, and wanted to become a writer yourself. I shared the beginnings of this novel with you, and I got to be honest. When I got feedback from you, I was like, "Fuck you." Um, <laughs> and and, and excellent. I, well, I mean, I don't mean that. I mean, it's a happy story. So when I got that feedback, I was like, "All right." What it told me was I didn't know what the hell I was doing. Right? You forced me to Google some stuff like head hopping and all you know some some other terms. So. In 2011, when I read that feedback from you, I'm like, all right, I'm not ready to do this because I don't know what I'm doing. My my writing experience had all been in in sports and, and that kind of thing, nonfiction. And when I picked it back up in 2016, the first thing I did was I, I found the document that I had sent you that had all your notes and feedback. And I read it and I said, you know what? This fucker's right. So I took all your suggestions, and one of the things you suggested was don't write it third person, write it first person. And when I did that, the damn thing took off, and it turned out to be my first novel, The Dark Truth, which was published a year later in 2017. So I have you to thank for that initial feedback. It took me five years to process it, but I have you to thank for that. So I figured I should take a moment on the show while I have you to thank you for that, which that led to a book deal, which led to a three book deal. And now I'm going to have a fourth one, which you've been, you've been so kind to, to read and, and offer feedback as, as one of my beta readers. Um, so I wanted to thank you personally for basically telling me I didn't know what the fuck I was doing and encourage me to learn some of the finer points of fiction writing. Oh, I really appreciate it, cousin. Um, that's very humbling and kind. And 
I don't know what to say other than I thank you for writing it and giving me the opportunity to give you feedback. Um, and, you, I, and you helped me get into a bookstore. I mean, you know, the, the bookstore there in Geneseo, uh, the, the guy's name, the proprietor's name's Fred, right? What was the damn name of the bookstore? Yes. Uh, Sundance Books. Sundance Books. Yeah, and you helped me get into a bookstore <laughs> I wouldn't have got in otherwise. I mean, you know, that's what it's all about, right, is helping each other. I've I've read some of your short stories. I mean, the one about and, your, your grandfather is, is obviously the most moving and the most poignant. But, you know, that's what it's all about is, is you know, whether we're family or not, is is when, when you're involved in a creative in, endeavor is, is encouraging each other and propping each other up rather than tearing each other down. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's something people have to realize is when people want, people want to be creative and artistic, but at the same time, if you, it's almost like troll culture is taking over to where you can't even make actual valid criticisms anymore to help somebody out. <laughs> and it's all, and like emotions get in the way a lot easier. Um, so it's kind of hard to even just discuss films at a deeper level online sometimes because especially in that format where people can downvote you and upvote you because you can write out this long theory and this long thing of why you do not like this film and it can have valid points in it. It could have invalid points in it, but at the same time, it's a, it's definitely a, a, a criticism and I think all criticism is valid. Um, so well, I'll give you a, I'll give you a perfect example, and I don't know if the person did this as a response to something I did or not. I mean, that would be vain for me to say that, but I wrote this treatise on on the the Universal MonsterVerse and and how I I felt that Universal created the very first interconnected cinematic universe. And this person was right. No, they wrote that. No, they didn't. And and I was very clear up front to say it was by accident or they didn't plan it, but but. In reality, this whole thing that in, it, you know starts with with Dracula in 1931 and goes all the way to uh, the creature from the Black Lagoon films of the 50s is, you know, there's this 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 cinematic universe that they created. It's the atmosphere. It's the storytelling. It's the actors that that were used and reused and recast and everything else. And the person was like, "No, no, they didn't do that." I'm like, "No, fuck you." Yeah, they did. Um, <laughs> You know, and, you know, one of the things I wrote about in, in my blog was how Stephen King has created this unbelievably connected multiverse. And, you know, over the course of 50 years, it's it's short stories, it's novels, it's movies, it's, it, it, you know, anthology films. But, you know, and whether he did it on purpose or not, you know, there's this interconnected thing. And you talked about Marvel, right? Marvel's the one that did it on purpose. And they did it with like 22 or 23 films. Whether you like the films or not, I respect what they did and what they tried to do. Uh, DC has failed in their attempts to replicate it. But I... Are you excited for the new Batman? You know what? I'm intrigued. Because I didn't like Ben Affleck as Batman at all. And I avoided those films like The Plague. But I, I don't like Robert Pattinson. Uh... You know, I saw the lighthouse, and I didn't care for the even the idea of Twilight, but I'm intrigued by what I see in the trailers for Batman, the new one. Yeah, so I read a couple early. Some some people saw some screenings of it, and I read some of their reviews, and um, 
this was on uh, one of the Reddit movie sites, and they said, so take it with a grain of salt because they could be lying, but they said that the movie is more of a thriller slash detective slash horror film and like way more tense than any other Batman. So that definitely piqued my interest in Batman. If I had to choose any superhero that I love the most, it would probably be Batman. I've loved his That's my favorite. I've always Batman, been Batman returns Batman. and yeah, you know Michael Keaton saying, "You want to get nuts? Come on, let's let's get nuts." Get that, nuts. Used my, <laughs> <laughs> that used to be one of my favorite quotes ever, and you absolutely, know, so Batman hits that nostalgia point for me. The the running theme of this show is the nostalgia point, and so I'm I'm very very happy to see the where I think this Batman is going to go, and how they're bringing the Penguin into it for the next one, and. I really enjoyed the Gotham series from from what I, I watched of it. Unfortunately, it's not considered canon or whatever. But, you know, I, I watched quite a few episodes. I didn't finish it. But, you know, I was really intrigued by, by uh, the Gotham series and, and some of the character development that they did there. And, uh, you know, I mean, anybody who doesn't think Batman's dark and disturbing is, you know, not reading the right comic book. Um, it's, you know... I find that fascinating. I, you know, I've talked about it on other, other episodes of the podcast and the thing that gets me in, in, you know, hopefully they add something to the narrative and they go, they do something, you know, intriguing and different. It's just a plain fact. They keep telling the same stories over and over and over and over again. And that's why, you know, when we talk about franchises like Halloween that we started with, are you bringing anything new to this story? Are you adding anything new? And if you're not, what are you doing? Are you playing on nostalgia? Are you playing on feelings? Or are you just trying to well, make money? Well, that's what we were talking about with it is if they just, you know, didn't focus so much on the children and focused on the kind of turned it on its head and focused more on the very real issues that people face today with trauma as people learn more about trauma. And they kind of put a more adult spin to it and a more drawn out spin. And I think that's why films like Hereditary felt really original to me, even though they had definitely homages to Exorcist and things like that. Um, But you kind of see this corporate landscape now where these corporations and these these movie studios are just putting out brands and they're, they're hoping that people feel obligated enough to see these brands because they hit that nostalgia bone funny bone and um and people keep going out and spending money on these brands so why would they ever stop and as these brands become more oversaturated and more withdrawn and one of my favorite comedy shows of all time is ron and fez and right now it's the bennington show and it's ron bennington he's one of the greatest radio interviewers ever and he's just a pop culture nut and they were actually talking about um why in Star Wars are we still focusing on these same characters when it's literally the idea of Star Wars was there's this whole universe out there. Why aren't they going out and finding whole new, you know, breeds of <laughs> breeds of aliens and things like that. And it's, it's almost because they don't want to take any more chances with these, with these brands. They don't want to. That's a whole a, different episode. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, but, but it's almost, doing the opposite effect is when they're not taking chances is actually hurting the brand more because mm-hmm. these movies are becoming more of one and the same. And 
kind of going at the same beat of the drum, the same way music is produced today on an algorithm. These movies are produced on an algorithm. And I think people are starting to realize that. And that's why things like hereditary seem so fresh. It's because no people can still sit through a two hour, two and a half hour slow burn horror movie and still feel completely enthralled with it and terrified from it. And it's, it's a learning lesson, I think, because there's also the, you know, we got the mini series now, which are pretty much something like, um, what was the, the outsider? We talked about yeah, the, the Outsider, and then more recently, Midnight Mass, um, which I still have to see. Yeah, yeah. and Chapel Wait, uh, which I still need to finish. I'm three episodes in. I need to get it. It, it concludes uh, Sunday night on Epic. So these are almost like six hour movies. So or more, you know. right? I mean, they're like twelve hour movies, and you know, they, I think the the miniseries has been reimagined. Right? It used to be like a two part thing back in the day, and now it's a nine part or ten part. They call them limited series now. And I think I watched something recently called The Chestnut Man. Uh, I think it was like I forget what. How was that? That was fantastic. You, oh, you I got it. I got to check it out. Yeah, great storytelling. Uh, I won't even give you any spoilers, but yeah, you need to watch. Give me kind of like a mayor of East Town meets true or true detective meets meets a lot of things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I enjoyed Mayor of East Town, and uh, you know that was that was a good good dark series. Um, Black Spot was pretty good. Uh, if you want to check that out, I didn't think Black Spot went. What one's that on? Netflix, I think. Netflix or Amazon? It, I didn't think it went went deep enough. Um, okay. You know, but again, you, you want, you know, something that they're calling it horror, but you know, watch squid game if you haven't already. I mean, it's, it's twisted and violent and, you know, I think, I think the key to this entire conversation cousin is that there's something for everybody. You, you are scared by being chased. One sister hates clowns. The other one hates gnomes. And I think there's a prank there that needs to happen. Um, you know, I have a thing with spiders. Everybody has their thing, right? But there's, there's a horror movie or thriller or whatever you want to call it for everybody. I happen to like vampires. That, that seems to be where, where I gravitate. Right. But I, I, I like monsters, right? I'm not, you know, the slasher is like, eh, if it's well done, I'll watch it. Um, but for the most part, you know, I like creatures. I like, I like monsters. And I think, um, there's, there's just, you know, I mean, you look at films like seven, right? Seven was a, that was a bit of a horror film. The human monster oh. is, is always going to be, uh, you know, part of it. If you've never read the girl next door by Jack Ketchum, uh, you know, the human monster, uh, the, the people next door that you don't know, uh, you know, could be chopping up bodies in the basement for all the fuck, you know, and that's, uh, that's kind of where you're seeing people's focus go to more nowadays is that true crime and the chestnut man is popular because of that true crime and Mm -hmm. psychological horror and the, like the movies like split, which are kind of like action horror movies. Yeah. Um, and don't breathe. That's more of an action horror movie. Um, so we're seeing more psychological things being played out with, uh, kind of like, um, almost like psychological pointing towards what people are dealing with today. Having like squid game was, was more about uh, capitalism and society and how, how, when you really break it down, 
money is so powerful that people will risk their lives for it because they think it can bring that much more joy talk to about, their life. Talk about a debtor's prison. Holy shit. Yes. Uh, <laughs> right? Yeah, but, I never thought an old Korean man could make me cry like that movie. Right, right. Or, or like that show. Yep. But it goes back to the, what we started with, talking about The Shining, right? When you think about it, that was if that fan theory is correct, that's psychological horror. That's not a ghost yes. story. That's not, you know, a slasher film. That I mean, traditionally, that, that is about a broken woman. That is about think, mental illness. And you have to think of when that movie was made and what people saw as schizophrenia and how they viewed schizophrenia. And that that's what makes that theory, that Wendy theory, which if you just search Wendy theory on YouTube, you'll find this video. And it can be a little bit annoying because it's got a robot voice, but it's not yeah. an overly bad robot voice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a little disarming. I had to, I had to ignore that. And, and they, just... they do well, though, because they intersplice the movie scenes and they kind of like walk you through it. So, yeah. But that's something that was just really piqued my interest. And actually that that uh, Sirius XM show Bennington was the one that brought my attention to it because it was Halloween and they had just saw, saw that video on the show and I'm instantly stopped listening to the show and went and watched that video to prepare for tonight because of the way they were talking about it. I'm like, maybe there is something to this because they, they were in the same boat and Ron Bennington's a huge Kubrick, Kubrick fan and he, uh, he saw the Room 239 documentary and said it was all bullshit on the radio and said, these these are just fan theories and he he said when he presented this he said this is a fan theory that i can actually get behind and kind of change the way i view this film and how you can really view that film under so many lenses and it makes sense but it doesn't make sense but once you see this fan theory video it's gonna make sense i believe yeah it's the thing that makes the most sense to me that you know when you when you think about it and when it when it's broken down like that you know but i also watched a video recently uh, and and this will be the the last thing we we talk about because you can look at things uh, through very different lenses. Uh, you know, when you look at Bride of Frankenstein, James Whale was you know one of the few openly uh, gay men in Hollywood at the time. When you look at, at break down Bride of Frankenstein through that lens, you can see how. Uh, there, there are a lot of metaphors for for being the the outsider, for being gay, for being a lot of different things, for being even being trans, uh, you know, represented in that film. And then it all wraps up with, oh, we're going back to normal heterosexual life. You know, we're we're out, but we're not. So yeah, um, you know, you can look at these different films as as metaphors for very different things. Dracula's daughter in 1936 is overtly lesbian. Uh, you, and you know, that when you watch that and think about that, it really kind of smacks you in the face. And that was, that was even during the, the, the Hayes code era, which started in 1934. Um, so this conversation about horror and horror films as we, we get ready for Halloween in two nights has been, uh, fascinating and enlightening and entertaining. I hope, uh, all of, uh, my listeners, would agree with that jason i encourage you to get back to writing because uh you have a lot of talent and i think uh i think the world would uh, like to take a walk through your head through your writing so i think you ought to gotta do some of that 
oh, you put me on the spot now. Now I have to. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I need to get back to it. I even confess I haven't been reading as much lately. Um, you know, I do – I, I have a lot of hobbies and I'm constantly busy doing Uber because I love meeting people and talking to people and I do jujitsu and, um, I, you know, reading, I have this whole bookshelf here with all these books and I've read pretty much most of them, but there's a few I haven't read. I'm like, man, I should really just sit down and start reading that and I need to get back to it. But it's been a blast, um, talking to you tonight. Um, we need to do it again. Maybe we can create a little list and, you know, people who are listening to this can, write in movies they want us to watch and discuss um make this an interactive ride as we go along and we can you know discuss movies that we're watching and kind of bring it to the podcast and go deeper into the film because there's a lot of interesting things happening with art and with film at this moment and as the technological singularity starts to happen there's kind of a singularity happening with art where books are being made into movies for the sake of or books are being made for the sake of being made into movies and movies are being made for the sake of being made into books. And you bring in the, the entertainment value of video games and how video games like the last of us, which is becoming an HBO series um, has inspired um, video game storytelling. And there's a lot of interesting things happening in the art atmosphere out there. Um, it's definitely a new age type of thing. And um one thing I forgot to discuss tonight, I wanted to ask your opinion on, um, Brett Easton Ellis brings this up on his podcast is about why there has not yet been a great millennial novel. <laughs> uh, cause you haven't written it yet. That's why. Um, Oh, and- don't put that pressure on me. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's a really, really good question. Um, I, I don't know it. Is it because the times are so confusing now because of the rush of technology and all the muddying of the water as the laws try to catch up to technology and and corporations try to catch up to technology? And I think I think there's just a lot of confusion. What's amongst that, people what's that experience, though? What is the experience millennials are having that they could actually write about? And can they sit still for five minutes to actually write the fucking book? Uh, it, yeah, they'd have right? to be more like a Vonnegut type book, so like short, snappy, yeah, witty, funny, funny things that could keep millennials and you know the newer, the newer generation, you know what they're called, Zoomers, and all of them interested because people still read, but it's in spurts and spats, and some people only read headlines. And you know. I, th- I think if you're if you're finding any of that stuff right now, it's 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 very niche. It's, you know, it, it has, it's exploring. I feel it's making a comeback. It's almost like vinyl records where people are like, did we get away from books too much? But No, I agree with you on that. I think I think books are making a comeback. But that great millennial novel, I think you're seeing some stuff in, in uh, you know, uh, writers of color. And I think you're seeing some stuff in, in the queer community when it comes to that. But nothing really mainstream, right? So, yeah. yeah. So, I, so I think, I think, you know, Part of the problem is, you know, what is the what is the experience that anybody and everybody could relate to? I think part of the problem is everybody's having different experiences. It's not like it was when I was growing up where there's everybody had singular experiences or we had the same frame of reference. It's just so scattershot because of of the entertainment and the news variety. Everybody is growing up in a vacuum their individual vacuum as opposed to 
uh, having a collective experience. And I think that's yeah, a whole different conversation for a different night. But I think that's part of the problem. I think I think your your better stuff coming out of millennials has has is coming from people of color. It's coming from international folks of of your generation, and and also from the queer community. But as far as that mainstream uh, millennial novel, I, I I don't know. I I don't know if we're gonna have one. Um, you know, that'd be great if we did, but you know, maybe you should write it. Um, <laughs> so yeah, the uh, you know yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, but I'd also say that I think that millennials are also more driven towards the more visual experience and that's why we see sure. more storytelling in video games and movies and miniseries and things like that and maybe maybe things will start to churn up more once the the influx of uh or the fad of book reading appears again or um, well, maybe when some of the, some of the folks of your generation are a little bit older and, and have had more experience uh, you know, in the world and want to slow down a little bit and feel the need to tell everybody about it. Right. And, you know, we touched on it earlier about, you know, a lot of folks with, uh, with, with mental illness and, and unresolved issues and trauma and that kind of thing. At some point, somebody's going to sit down and write about this stuff in a way that relates to everybody as opposed to a niche audience. So, um, Jason, we can it's, all hope. yes, yes, we can all hope. Absolutely. Uh, it's been fantastic talking to you for the last hour and a half. Um, oh, oh, it's been an hour and a half. Oh yeah. We could, we could go on for another hour and a half. Oh but, man. I could, yeah. I could Absolutely. deep into this stuff. Oh, I know we're deep in the weeds on storytelling, which is, which was the idea. Uh, Halloween. I feel like we uh, kind of trailed. I'm sorry to keep cutting you off, but I feel like we kind of trailed off in certain areas and forgot to tie up some loose ends there, but <laughs> It's, it's fine. <laughs> but, it was so, but that's the way the conversation went. It was awesome. It was, yep. it was really sweet. I think we covered a lot of ground and a lot of pertinent information and some some entertaining stuff there. So yeah, I think yeah, the goal was accomplished. Yep, and it's it's Halloween, which is engendered storytelling for uh, generation after generation, uh, and and will continue on uh, into the future. Uh, I want to thank my my guest the comedian, the writer, the student, the corporate stooge, the martial artist, but most importantly, he's my cousin. He's my family, Jason Steele. Thank you for uh, coming on the show and uh, regaling my 22 listeners or whatever it is uh, with, uh, with tales of uh, scary storytelling. Well, I love you cousin. And thanks for having me. Yeah. Love you too, brother. We will yep. talk soon like we always do. That's going to do it for this edition of the Get the Neck podcast. Oh, I have, brought it back. I had to bring it back. I have been your <laughs> host, Jerry Neck. Enjoy Halloween. In my bad Bella Lugosi impression. Bleh, bleh, bleh. I do not say bleh, bleh, bleh. Uh, that's going to do it for this edition of the Get the Neck podcast. Join me next Friday night for another edition be safe this Halloween, everybody. I know a lot of people are out there getting back out there, trick-or-treating and partying and having a good time in this this COVID era. Be sure to mask up. Hopefully you're vaccinated, but uh, be safe out there. We'll see you next time. <laughs>